The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode, we're bringing you a fascinating conversation with a winner of this year's Dan David Prize, the prize of which History Extra is a media partner recognises outstanding scholarship that illuminates the past and seeks to anchor public discourse in a deeper understanding of history. Today's guest is Dr Miriam Brucius. Based at the German Historical Institute London, Miriam researches how museums can broaden our understanding of visual and material culture in global and colonial contexts. She was interviewed by the author, broadcaster and public historian Helen Carr, who's working with us on this series. Dr. Miriam Brusius, welcome to the BBC History Extra podcast and congratulations on your achievement as a winner of the 2022 Dan David Prize. I've got so much to ask you as your work on the history of museums and display is incredibly current, particularly as many people are confused about how we should judge the past. Before we begin, would you mind introducing yourself, um, your role, and importantly, how and what led you to study cultural heritage? Thank you very much for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. So I'm currently a research fellow in colonial and global history at the German Historical Institute based in London. And um, I study uh, questions related, as you just said, uh, to uh, where museum objects come from, how did they get to Europe, and uh, why are they in European museums. And while this is something that is currently very much on the mind of of people and public debate uh, in the UK and elsewhere in Europe, I have started to look into these kind of questions around 10 years ago um, through my work in history of photography um, at the British Museum. Uh, where I looked into how photographs are used to basically make sense of museum objects. And at one point, I got more interested into what these objects actually are that were depicted on the photographs and what these sites are, uh, where they were excavated. So it's mainly archaeological objects that I'm interested in. And so this is what took me to the, the current research that I'm working on now. Looking at museums and the way things are displayed, who do you think is at the centre of of this museum narrative? And Do you think this has been shaped and perpetuated by colonial collectors, you know, going back to the origin of of the museum? 
Absolutely. I think what we're still seeing right now on museum display is very much still the narrative that was shaped in the 19th century. And even though there have been generations of, of curators who I appreciate have been trying to do something different, I would say that the, the general overall mindset and framework that museums operate in are still very much uh, bound and uh, sort of dedicated to uh, 19th century ideas of collecting. And even though um, that might be something that is not very conscious, um, it's precisely the fact that this is kind of made invisible. So you see very little um, context about how how ideas and taxonomies um, are itself something that museums should be exhibiting. So I would say, yes, it is still a narrative that is very much in the 19th century, even though it, it many people feel that we've moved on. And also, yes, it's still a narrative that is very much bound to historical male, white, upper-class uh, figures, such as Hans Sloan, who was uh, fundamental in shaping the collection of the British Museum, or Alexander von Humboldt, who was important in the, in the sense that he contributed to collecting in the history of collecting in Germany. And so, Even the names of these new museums still reflect that. So, yes, I would say um, things have changed, but more change is needed in that respect. So these objects aren't generally being presented in a way that speaks of those who originally used them. I mean, this is obviously important. So how do you think this could be done effectively, you know, particularly in reference to um, indigenous knowledge and, and use of, of the objects and material culture? So I'm currently working um, collaboratively in a project called A Hundred Histories of a Hundred Worlds in One Object. And to um, British listeners of this program, this might kind of sound familiar because there was a program 11 years ago called A History of the World in a Hundred Objects that was co-produced by the BBC and the British Museum and uh, mainly under the um, curatorship of uh, the then director, Neil McGregor. And what he tried to do is to tell a history of the world uh, using 100 objects of the British Museum's collection. And uh, 10 years after this famous book and radio program came out, um, a group of people, and, and I was one of them, uh, we organized a workshop um, in Jamaica where the origin of the British Museum collection um, can be located um, to basically turn this story upside down and to make the point that one object can in fact have a hundred histories of a hundred worlds. And so there are all these uh, different narratives and um, histories about objects that have been left out often um, in the museum narrative and that I think these are the stories that we need to tell now um, and that's very often about not just the journey of museum objects and how they got here but also Uh, the story about the function that an object can still have now uh, in these cultures and communities of origin. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about this workshop that you you organized. So I'm just going to repeat the title of it, The Hundred Histories of a Hundred Worlds in One Object. And this conference you know, explored how the objects came to being in the collection, which is the main difference to, to the, the BBC and the, the British Museum um, project beforehand that you talked about. But I think it's interesting that you chose to host this in Jamaica because you've written so beautifully about this. And 
I, I just like to know more about why you chose to do this. And I ask that because it was seemingly an influential and important part of the critical experience and the point of the workshop in telling how these objects came to being part of a collection. Yes. Um, so the project now is a website uh, with resources and podcasts and essays and reviews where we tell these object histories in a different way. But it really started, um, as you said, um, as an, an event um, and we chose Jamaica as a, a place to convene this workshop precisely because uh, Hans Sloan in the 18th century um, went there to collect a museum objects and specimens, natural history specimens that formed the collection of what is now the British Library, the British Museum, and also um, the museums in South Kensington in the 19th century. So the collection was later dispersed. And we thought it was it would be interesting to basically um, do this journey that the objects did um, in reverse and go back to where these objects come from um, in order to um, adapt to a point of view from um, of, of these of the country of origin and um, what was really powerful was the fact that the 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 event took place at the University of Mona campus which is part of the University of the West Indies and the name already tells us that um, it's, it derives from the idea of, of empire, right? Um, and because it's a, it's a university that uh, was founded um, as part of, of the British Empire. Jamaica used to be a colony of the British Empire. And this campus used to be a plantation site. So um, it's basically a graveyard of uh, enslaved people. And um, we, we saw some of these um, remains on site. Uh, we also looked into hist the history of the transatlantic slave trade that was, in fact, uh, fundamental in supporting, in a way, also financing these kind of collection histories. So it's a very violent history that actually under uh, underlies this history of collecting and seeing this um, is shifting the ge geographical focus uh, to this former site of violence and uh, and the, the former colony uh, really sort of reframed the entire project for us. And it was, um, yeah, it was a very powerful, very moving event. Um, we gave our first object histories on site uh, just to sort of test out, you know, whether that would work. And so we had 15 people from from around the world, um, taking the objects that Neil McGregor had originally chosen and just telling their own version from the point of view of these countries of origin. And doing that in Jamaica, uh, while also connecting to people in the heritage sector on site, uh, was uh, made all the difference uh, for us because it's also about shifting the focus away from the metropolis of empire, a place like London, where everything sort of always seems to uh, come together and really going uh, venturing out to the peripheries of, of the of the former British Empire and to see it literally from the point of view of, of these sites. One of the things that um, that came out of this this workshop that I found interesting was the concern for the relationships around these objects. You know the in, the intangible emotions that 
they contained from past contacts. And you describe treatment of these objects as being a one-dimensional narrative. Um, what, what do you mean by that? Is it a case that in exhibiting these, we're, we're really just lacking empathy for the people within the story of that object's past? I think so, yes. Um, it's, a, it's a narrative that kind of um, also erases the fact that these objects did not just magically appear in the museum collection. So that's the first thing. We need to understand how they got there in the first place, who took them, that they might not have just been acquired in the museum, but that uh, someone might have taken them in a in a violent uh, colonial context. Not all of them, but many of them. And so I, I think it's important to tell that story and uh, that story would then also acknowledge the labor that went into into um, taking these objects because often, especially in the case of archaeology, but also in the case of natural history, there was a lot of indigenous labor that went into collecting these objects. So, for example, you had locals excavating the finds, um, maybe not being adequately paid for that um and so there is a story on a local level that's related to labor first of all um and it's important to highlight that and no longer erase it but then secondly also um it's about the meaning of these objects and the meaning they have had in the past in these cultures in these countries or empires um, and that they might still hold today. So if I can just give you one example. So there's a famous object ca called the Akan Drum um, at the British Museum. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And um, the British Museum had finally decided to highlight the fact that this is an object that is related to transatlantic slave trade. And we definitely should acknowledge that, you know, there has, there have been things happening on that front. And the British Museum is now, you know, has an exhibition about that part of its history. Um, and the Akandram um, has been presented as an object that is related to the slave trade that came originally from Ghana and then made its journey within that context. However, our uh, digital editor of this project that I just mentioned, uh, Benjamina Efuadatsia, she um, 
decided, who's originally from Ghana, um, decided to tell a different story about this object. So she said, that's all very important. And yes, it is important to talk about uh, the transatlantic slave trade and highlight the violent history of these collections. But ultimately, that would also mean that it's all about Europe again. <laughs> and it's all about the British Museum again. So that is something that is very much at the heart of the of the project as well, to not just shift away from the metropolis of London and Europe in itself, but also really tell a story that can be also a positive story about the function of these objects today. And so what Benjamina did was that she took this object and she said, we are still using Akan drums in Ghana today. And then she conducted an interview with her favorite Akan drum band. And they they basically explained, you know, how these how these instruments are used today, the the ritual, uh, the rituals that are attached to them, uh, and so on. And so these are objects that are very much alive, so to speak, not just in the past. They were not just alive in the past. They also many of them are alive now. So because of this this historic centering of the metropolis, um, do you think it's possible to recover? marginalized histories through objects and you know how far can a museum go with that can they can they explain gender or ethnicity um i mean you just you just mentioned the example of the akan drum which is a great one which actually i suppose in itself demonstrates that it is possible but i, I just wonder if you could expand on that as to sort of how we might how we might be able to tell a wider story rather than you know shifting shifting the focus from these colonial attitudes yes that is um exactly the challenge <laughs> so i should also add that um usually historians work with archives when they want to look into the history of an object but of course the archives that we have available they are also the archives of the powerful so if you look into only the institutional history of the british museum what you get our letters and correspondence of um, exactly the kind of people that we talked about before, the the, the, the man, m- mostly men, uh, and middle and uh, upper class, uh, privileged white senior males who um, created the collection. And so this entire narrative that many refer to as the subaltern and the marginalized, that is not necessarily in the archive. And so what I in my own work tend to do is I look it for information between the lines in these archives. So I sort of look if I can find something that is sort of, um, that might not be directly mentioned, but that it hints at something. Um, it's interesting always to look at logistics and the kind of people who, who supported the transport of these objects. Um, but you will not find the names, for example, of the people who excavated, say, archaeological objects. That is very, very rare. Uh, that you find a logbook of the people who help with the excavations, for example. So um, what I'm saying here is that it is a methodological challenge and we need to uh, develop new methods, um, how we can actually tell new stories about these objects. And I think oral history, for example, would be an avenue to uh, write um, also women and other ethnicities back into that story. Um, however, um, not everyone who was involved will be alive 
today. So um, one way of doing that would be to talk uh, to people who um, maybe this kind of knowledge was passed on over generations. And um, it is surprising how often that is actually the case, because um, unlike in Europe, I think oral uh, histories and uh, exactly that kind of oral transmission of knowledge plays a, a fundamental role in many countries in a way that it does not in Europe, where we tend to um, document everything on paper and you know take the minutes and so on. But there are all these stories that that people know um, also about objects and the museum collection that can be retrieved even in a third and a fourth generation and they can yield very interesting stories. And so to give you another example, for example, the the Rosetta Stone, which is also a very famous object in the British Museum collection, has been mainly exhibited under the famous name of Champignon, who uh, deciphered uh, this this uh, the script that was on this uh, multilingual stone. However, um, our author Heba Abd El Gawat, who is uh, from Egypt and also an Egyptologist, she retrieved. Um, a completely different sort of point of view by talking to people in the city of Rashid, where uh, the the object originally came from, and she she found out that uh, the people from Rashid were actually involved in the decipherment of the stone, and that uh, the city has its own sort of local history that is also connected with colonial encounters at the time with the French um, and the British. And uh, that, you know, there's a, a, a local narrative to be told. And people still have maybe not direct memories, but um, kind of, yeah, knowledge passed on over generations that still matter for the identity of the place today. And uh, these are the kind of uh, stories that we need to write back into the picture and it's up to museums to sort of figure out how to do that and i think the only way to do it is to involve people uh, from these countries but also the diaspora uh, a place like london it's actually not very difficult to find people who come from 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 the places where uh, the objects come from and to ask them what their point of view is about the items in these collections still to come on the History Extra podcast. I hope that um, my work will, will show that when we care about material culture, that ultimately this is not about something material, it's about people. So we should care about objects because we care about people and uh, create awareness for the fact that um, the reason why uh, these objects have meaning is because people see meaning in them. I really like that you use the example of the Rosetta Stone and how how people were involved within its, you know, from its origin, were, were um, involved in its translation. And that makes me, it, well, it sort of segues very neatly into my question. You know, how how far by removing an object from its original space do we actually lose its story? I mean, through the process of removing it, does it does it just become data because it's com taken completely out of context? It is problematic, and data is a very, sort of very clinical word, isn't it? Uh, related to knowledge making and science and all the rational things that 
um, that people also hope to find in these collections, because often these collections were used for scientific purposes. So they were not just there for pleasure, but they were actually there to be studied and um, to be um, used to retrieve uh, future knowledge. And that is still the case today. Especially if you're looking at archaeology. I mean, archaeology is effectively in many ways data collecting. Absolutely. So, yes, I mean, you still see when you go backstage uh, to study room of the British Museum, you can still see see scholars there sitting there deciphering cuneiform tablets. But also, unfortunately, and um, I looked into this recently when I uh, studied the collections in Berlin, unfortunately, also, there are still cases where human remains are still used for scientific uh, research. Um, And it's claimed that it's all sort of morally... Uh, and scientifically uh, justified, but um, there are definitely problematic aspects about that. And so, yes, um, data is is definitely something that the people who originally built these collections were after. And absolutely, I would say that removing objects from context always takes away meaning from them. Um, and in, in particular, if you look at uh, archaeological objects and how they could potentially live on if they weren't in the museum, you find exciting stories. You find stories such as people uh, using antique objects um, to build a new house or to sort of integrate these kind of um, antiquities into their rituals, into their daily lives, into their um, vernacular uh, practices. And um, the sites that we now perceive as authentic, as Authentic sites of antiquity, such as Palmyra, uh, or many sites in Greece, um, in Turkey, and so on, they are, in a way, they are artificial, right? Because um, often they were created in a process where archae- uh, European archaeologists went in, they took some of the objects to bring them to European museums, and they kind of sanitized the rest of the site by removing people who were actually using um, the site to live their lives. So we know of cases where there had been villages uh, in sites such as Palmyra. And so what was interesting about the debate that we had a few years ago when, when ISIS destroyed some of these sites was that the fact that these sites had already been destroyed um, by European archaeologists to remove objects in order to bring them to European museums. That aspect had also been erased. So there has been destruction in the past, but on the part of, of Europe. And I think it's important to acknowledge that the way that Europe, European museums preserve objects, that's not the only way to preserve an object. An object can also be used and live on. Um, in a different context, and often this is the case um, in uh, in these sites, or it was the case in these sites. Mm. There's so much discomfort when we talk about ownership and how objects should or could be shared globally. And you call this object fetishization, which I love. It's obviously important to understand global histories, but what would you say to those who feel confused about where they stand in this debate and importantly how they could be critical of what they are looking at when visiting museums you know how can people 
themselves when visiting these museums decolonize the way in which they are viewing these historical objects? I think we've we probably reached a point where museum audiences no longer go to a museum and they take them for granted. I would hope so. I mean, it's not been an easy debate. As you said, there has been a lot of discomfort and a lot of pushback as well. But the pushback is only a sign of something not having gone right. It's, um, there is pushback because something's at stake. And, and, and people at large, society at large, realizes, okay, maybe that this has been an unbalanced story and we are about to lose power our, I mean, you, the pushback happens because there is there are, are parties in that stories that feel we are losing power or the dominant narrative that we have been benefiting from, and so I think the debate, um, no matter how difficult it has been for some people, has definitely um, moved forward in a way that enables people to go to a museum and not sort of take this space as something. Uh, that has a universal uh, worldview that applies to everyone. But I think there's definitely more of an awareness uh, now in audiences to ask, okay, but why why are these objects here and what do they mean? And um, I think it, it would be interesting to um, look more into visitor books and to have more information about that because I definitely think that in a multicultural city, uh, like London, people do leave feedback and um, they do question certain things. And uh, it's only a matter of time um, where, you know, museums have to take up um, all these demands. So there are people out there demanding a new narrative, especially in a, in a city where school classes are so multicultural. Um, you need to offer a story that is not just one narrative, but tells a sort of mutual or shared history, especially from also for, for communities from South Asia, the black communities uh, uh, who live uh, live in this country. And um, I also want to stress the fact that this kind of work is definitely already happening. So we shouldn't be talking just about the British Museum. There's great work happening in the museum sector exactly on that front and many curators having a awareness for for these demands and i think it's 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 good as a museum visitor to challenge what these museums do and to tell they'll need feedback say what kind of stories you want to hear and see in a museum and uh, also ask your museum you know how does that relate to who i am and um why is it? Why does it matter? Why are these things here? Why should I care? And um, and and bring the communities back into the museum. So it's not just about creating a more global, um, inclusive narrative. It's also about creating a more inclusive narrative on the on a local level, really. And uh, um, in a multicultural society like Britain, that it's act that is actually not too difficult because the world is here as a result of empire. So finally, Miriam, how do you think your work will shape discourse around the history of museums and display moving forward? And uh, just adding on onto that, also, how do you hope it will make the most impact on our popular understanding of cultural history? I hope that um, my work will will show that when we care about material culture 
that ultimately this is not about something material. It's about people. So we should care about objects because we care about people and uh, create awareness for the fact that um, the reason why uh, these objects have meaning is because people see meaning in them. And so I think it's, it's important, or I would hope that my work can show that we need to write the human and the people back into that story. As you said, uh, as you said earlier, mm, remove away from this object fetishism and, um, and create a more social history of these objects. Um, so that's that's one aspect. And the other aspect I, I hope to highlight is there's so many objects in museum storage in, in Europe. And it really, that is a reflection of this kind of, again, a fetishism, but also a, a, a strange way, a, a strange desire of preserving something for the future. Um, uh, while nobody quite knows what that future is and what we even need these objects for. And for whom and why and why they are here. And so I think at an age of repatriation, um, it's important to ask, uh, what do we want from these collections? Um, does everything need to go back? Maybe not. If, if objects stay here, is there a different story that we should tell about them? And uh, really look at the collections that are not on display in a new way, but also use um, repatriation in a way that, again, isn't just about the return of something material. It should be the start of a new conversation uh, about equal partnership and relationship between Europe uh, and its former colonies um, because the social inequalities uh, that are still prevailing as a result of empire are, are still a problem. And so I think Ultimately, the museum and these objects, they are just the start of a conversation. They are literally the tip of an iceberg. And this should be about um, equal uh, distribution of, of funding, uh, new economic relationships, and, and many more things. And the museum is just a sort of material embodiment, hopefully, uh, about, uh, of, of a start of a, of a new conversation on a, on a global level that is about inclusivity and equality. Thank you so much, Maroon, for coming on the podcast. That was fantastic. And um, congratulations again on your very well-deserved prize. Thank you. That was Dr. Miriam Brucius, Research Fellow at the German Historical Institute London. She was speaking to the author, broadcaster and public historian Helen Carr. Miriam is one of the winners of this year's Dan David Prize, the world's largest history prize, which recognises outstanding historical scholarship. If you'd like to hear more conversations between Helen and other winners of the Dan David Prize, you can access the whole collection early and ad-free now at historyextra.com slash dan david prize. And you can find out more about the Dan David Prize, including their events and the other winners, at dandavidprize.org. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt. 